The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. Hey, Freddie Lachance, thanks for following in Twitter. I appreciate... No, not Twitter. Oh, my God. I got all my social medias and streaming platforms all confused. In Twitch, thank you, Freddie, for doing that. Uh, welcome, everybody. We've got a great show tonight. We're going to be talking with Gail Hasen. Uh, she's an experiencer, but she's way more than that. Uh, she's awfully modest about what she is based on that description of her work, just being an experiencer, because she's done so much more. And we'll talk about everything that she has done. It's a long uh, life of very, very interesting experiences, experiments, and uh I guess meetings, the people that she worked with, the people she met. It's really, really interesting. Hello to everybody in our chat rooms, particularly the YouTube chat. Good to see everybody filing in as uh, we get rolling here on a, what is it, Thursday night. Two shows this week. How about that? Well, we are almost in October, and October is Halloween month, so we have to do more ghost shows for Halloween. I think think we're going to have to set those up. Uh, just because it's the time of year, you have to talk about ghosts and stuff. Maybe even throw a vampire thing in there. Um, witch thing as well. We'll do a witch show as uh, in addition to that. We had a lot of uh, great witches on the program. I think back on, on many of them. Um, I know which one Scooter's thinking of, but there were more than just that one. We've had a lot, and we should bring some of those those folks back. In fact, it might be cool have a few of them on the same program and do a little roundtable thing. I don't know. We'll have to get Slick Eddie working on some of that. That's way too much work for me. I've got too much going on to organize these kind of things. I'm already getting a headache from thinking about it. Uh, we oh, At the end of the show, we're, I think we're going to take a minute and, and do a quick update on the um, the Gabby Petito case. I noticed when Gigi came into the chat room, he said, where was it here? I still believe that national homicide case is a mass distraction i find that a very interesting comment and i never would have thought that until you you mentioned it Gigi. i wonder how much truth there is to something like that it's kind of funny how when the u.s government the federal government is having such trouble doing so many things creating so many disasters that all of a sudden you've got this case and i'm not saying that the case itself is fabricated i don't mean that at all i just mean the the, the attention in the media is is where i would go you know um, okay, so let's see. We're going to talk with Gail Hasten tonight. Looking forward to that conversation. Please subscribe and follow if you're new to the program. Love to have you, uh, you know, click the like button plus subscribe. Or if you're in uh, Twitch, you can follow. If you have an Amazon Prime account, you can um, you can uh, subscribe for free using the Amazon Prime account. You just link the account to the to the subscription on the channel. And there's no additional charge. The only thing about that, though, is you have to renew it every 30 days. I think it only lasts a month. And uh, then you have to renew it. And, again, no charge. You just have to keep going in there and, and renewing it. So we appreciate that. Anyway, um, let's let's go to break here and let's uh, get ready to bring our guest in. Again, tonight we're talking with Gail Hasen, and we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of things with Gail tonight. Looking forward to this conversation. We'll be right back. Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter. And we really, really encourage 
encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch right now. That dollar a month, less than a dollar, goes a long way in helping us produce this program, provide great interviews for you during the course of the week. I thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program. All right, welcome back to the program. It's Beyond Reality. Again, if you're a podcast listener, we appreciate you doing that, being part of our podcast family. It's uh, it's a large group of people. I'm, I'm truly amazed and actually quite humbled by the number of people that download the podcast every day, something around 10,000 downloads a day. So thank you so much. We've had over 2 million downloads of the podcast version of the show in 18 months. Um, again, very humbled and very grateful. So thank you for that. If you're one of our live stream uh, viewers on YouTube or Twitch and you want to find the podcast, it's available on all major podcast distrib- distribution platforms. You just have to look for um, Beyond Reality Paranormal. That's the name of the show in the podcast platforms, Beyond Reality Paranormal. Tonight, we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of great things as well. Our guest tonight is Gail Hasten. Gail is an experiencer. Gail, welcome to the program. I have to say you're very, very modest because after I read all about you, learned about your experiences throughout your whole life, you're way more than an experiencer. You've got so many facets to your, I guess we would call it your spiritual life, your paranormal life, if you will. Um, But I guess if you lump it all into experiencer, it's a little easier to say that, but it's, it's a bit of an understatement, I'd say. Well, first I want to say thank you so much for having me on your show. It's the first time I've ever been on live radio, and so it's kind of exciting. I want to say that that was an interesting word you to- you chose, experiencer, because I realized when I started giving talks in, like, 2004 or five, when I started sort of coming out of the closet, being able to speak in front of people, I called all of my talks my experience of. <laughs> so I, I feel like you chose a very good word there. <laughs> well, your whole life has been made up of experiences, many different kinds, many different, I guess you would call them disciplines if we're trying to divide things within paranormal categories. But it, a lot of this started for you as a child. Even as a child, you were noted to have some unusual or maybe unique sensitivities uh, that people around you recognized. Yes. Um, my father recognized them, and some of the um, friends that he had that were more open-minded, critical thinking, and on a spiritual path would say to him, your daughter is a very spiritual child. So <laughs> it was kind of brought to his attention by his of his other friends. Mm-hmm. But... Um, my childhood experiences that I can remember the most of was my uh, connection to dreams and my out-of-body astral kind of, you know, when I'd think I'd go to sleep at night, but then I'd sort of jump out of my body and float around my house looking at all the people sleeping, including myself. So those would be the first known, like, things that I thought were unusual that is something I would do, but when I tell other people, my friends would say, no, I don't do that. (laughs) 
Did you recognize what was going on as a child? You say your father recognized these, you know, traits or, or, or sensitivities within you. Did you recognize it, or did you just think it was the, nor- the normal no, way I everyone? Thought, well, lived? I thought it was normal for me, so it seemed like it was. I didn't think it. I thought everybody, when they went to sleep, could fly around their house. I didn't know that everybody <laughs> really didn't do that. It seemed normal to me, and I grew up in a house where my grandparents, um, who were from Russia and Poland, and in, and had immigrated um, to New York. They, uh, my grandmother spoke Yiddish, and uh, she would, when I'd go down to visit her in her house, she would say things to me in the morning like, yes, but but with a heavy Yiddish accent, she would be saying, I I spoke to Label last night, and I spoke to this one, and so different people who had died in her life, she would tell me that they'd come to visit her in her dreams, in her sleep, and she'd have conversations with them. So that seemed like normal to me. That didn't seem like an unusual thing to have experiences in your dreams. So I think that kind of environment was made it easy for me to be at ease with the dreams and the experiences I was having as a kid, knowing sometimes death was coming. And I think that had to do with, you know, having that groundwork ahead of time, not someone saying to you, oh, you can't hear voices or you can't have things in your dreams come true. I was, you know, I I saw people, I saw my grandmother say, I'm speaking to him. I talked to him. We had a great visit, you know. (laughs) So that was a really good start in childhood. But it was really in my teenage years that things became more, that's when it was obvious for me. And that's when I was realizing that, other people aren't maybe as sensitive to, as I was about things or feelings or knowingness, you know, like if something dangerous was going to happen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Now, one of my questions is, though, as a child, when you first started to becoming aware of these things, as you put it, you know, you thought everybody could fly around their house at night and see themselves yes. sleeping. When that was happening, were you making it happen or was it happening to you? Well, I don't think I was, it never felt like I was making it happen. It always sort of felt like it just happened. So I, I wasn't like intent. It wasn't like right. I'd said, it wasn't like I'd go to sleep at night and say, okay, I'm going to go to sleep and now I'm going to travel. I learned to do that in my more later years, like in my early 20s. I realized that I could do what I did as a child and that I didn't need to, I, I didn't have to shut that off, that I could expand and 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 travel you know above my house and then above my city and continue traveling that way but that didn't come till later you know later on after i'd had many other experiences now you also said something about you you knew or you would sense that death was coming is that does that mean that you could foretell someone's passing or at least that yes, that someone many, would pass for all since from from my whole life that's been one of the things that happens to me where Somebody, either they they walk by, I might hardly know them, and I'll just say, oh, my God, that person's going to die. And two weeks later, you, you get a phone call from someone who knew them that all of a sudden they had a rare heart thing, and all of a sudden they just died. Or, like, my grandfather was on his way to work, and I think I was about 16, and he was coming out the door, and I just looked at him. He looked perfectly like he always looked, but all I felt like was, oh, my God, he's going to die. But I don't feel that that's something you tell the person when you get that feeling. But I do talk to someone about it. So I talked to my father and said, you know, I just had an image that Grandpa's going to die when he just came out of the house. He said, what do you mean? He's perfectly fine. 
And in two weeks, he was in a hospital with an incurable colon cancer, and he died, you know, shortly after all the treatments and everything. So there are things like that, or like I have an uncle. My my uncle Stanley had a very unusual, some kind of a hemorrhage, something that happened in the brain. I don't remember exactly. And I was sitting here and having all the experience, and I had this dream that my my uh, my my uncle Stanley's in the dream, and all I keep saying is they can't stop the bleeding, they can't stop the bleeding, and then I find out that he's been rushed to a hospital in an emergency room, and they're trying to stop the bleeding of something that happened in the brain. So they're those kind. Or sometimes I experience the death. I my my first love, Ricky, that was the you know like my your first boyfriend, your first love, and I'm in Hong Kong in 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 uh cooking school and all of a sudden I feel like oh my god I can't breathe and I know my friend is dying I have no facts on these informations they always come to me after I have the experience mm-hmm. but as I've gotten older I sometimes get where I physically feel what's happening to the person at the time that it's happening but I usually have but I don't have any information I may know that they're sick or they're not well but I experience it at the moment that that they're experiencing it almost sometimes I feel like it's almost like accompanying a person when they're going to these next stages of going to death. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I can only think, I mean, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and having that sensitivity. And it seems to me like, Blessing and a curse. I was going to say it's a bit. It's a you know there is a blessing part to it, I suppose. But it seems like I was thinking curse and man, what a burden! I mean, to carry that around with you, uh, if well, you know something about somebody, and obviously you, I mean, I don't know. I you know, I guess you could debate on whether telling them is the right thing to do or not. I would say you're right in not telling people. However, that's what I, I what a burden. Something I discussed with my dad because I saw his death coming, Ooh. and I was would be driving around and I would just break down crying and my dad was perfectly fine then there's nothing had happened to him but I that this deep emotion would take over me that he was something was going to happen and he ended up with the same cancer that his father had died of the same colon cancer in the same place and when I when he was taken ill I said to him, Dad, I, I saw all this coming, but I didn't want to say anything. I didn't know if it was the right thing or what to do, and I feel so bad now. And he said to me, no, no, it's every person's discovery of their death and dying. It's not for you to tell them anything about it. And that gave me great relief that, that I'd done the right thing by not saying anything. And um, it just, it, you know, it, it, it it's... It, it was a the way you're saying burden. It was a very heavy thing to have to keep carrying around. Yeah. And then once he did get sick, it was sort of like now I could let my emotions come out without being driving around in a car somewhere and them just sort of hit me. You know what I mean? I do. Um, if I could play devil's advocate for just a moment, and I hate the fact that this is this is specifically about your father because that's obviously very very personal. However. Um, Oh, I can give you other deaths if you no, want. No, no, no. I just want, I just because, you know, the thought here, in that particular instance, he, he had an illness that his father had. Um, is there any chance that you, 
seeing for foreseeing his death may have may, allowed him to get additional Medicare if you had said something? I mean, I, I hate to even mention that. But. Well, no, because my dad would never take any medical attention. He he raised us with no doctors, no dentists. Yeah. And he was going through old had, school. When we when we brought him to the hospital, to the emergency room, it was because he could not even walk or stand anymore, and that he finally let us take him. So. If I would have said something, I always wondered if when my feeling started, it was two years before he was, you know, brought to the hospital with the cancer. Mm -hmm. So I always wondered, was I starting to, to, to know that this was happening to him when it began, but we didn't know anything until it fully knocked him out? This we don't know because you don't know when the cancer started. Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. My father passed away from cancer, too. Um, it's just a, such a horrible thing to go through as a family. It was a, it, it is a, but my dad managed it differently than most people that you know, because mm-hmm. when he was diagnosed, they said, uh, you know, he, he could, he need to have an oncologist and go and have chemotherapy and radiation. And he said, no, yeah. he would not do that. And he lived three really good years. Mm-hmm. And um, in the two months of his dying time, uh, we met with his doctor who had, you know, done the initial diagnosis, and he said that my dad managed his cancer better than anyone he had ever seen in all his years of of treating people. And I guess it was his, you know, he was determined to do all different, you know, homeopathic and other remedies and things that was building up his system to be strong. So he was very, very healthy. Uh, He was lifting weights up until like two weeks before he passed. And so he's not your regular case when we talk about yeah, the cancer well, you know <laughs> you know i think i think there's you know there's a justifiable debate as to whether the you know the disease is the medicine is worth or the cure is worth worse than the disease you know i know in my father's instance you know he went through radiation and chemo and all that stuff and in the last few months of his life and um it didn't change i mean from what i can tell it didn't change a thing he it, still died he still died rather quickly and maybe those days and months could have been better used elsewhere, you know? So there's that you know, question. They, they even found, because the, when the, can, the cancer was in his uh, intestines, but they said it was going to spread, and it spread to his liver. And when they had checked the liver, they said that there were three cancer-like spots or something, and that two of them had been killed off. Oh, wow. And they were amazed. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and... I'll tell you, the end of that story was my dad wanted to be cremated, and um, our Jewish family wasn't that thrilled about the cremation idea, but mm-hmm. I was in charge of, I was his medical power of attorney or whatever, yep. and I had to follow his wishes, and up until his last days when he, you know, when he was still speaking before you go into the death part where you, you can't swallow right. and you can't speak, right. which happens in different deaths, you know, not everybody just has a pleasant death. And uh, he said, no, I want to be cremated. That's what I want to do. And so I took it upon myself to attend his cremation, which, by the way, people don't realize that they can actually do. Buddhists, of course, know this because they do do that. But uh, other people, when I said, I'm going to take care of my dad's cremation, I'm going to be there, I'm going to watch the whole thing, and I'm going to, you know, participate. Well, I just felt it was the right thing to do because he was that kind of a man. And so I 
opened up his cardboard box that he was in before we put him inside the little oven. And I, I blessed his, his body with things from the air and the, and the earth and, the, and water and fire. And, um, you know, and then we put the body in and there was actually a little opening there. And my husband said to me, look, you can see the body in flames. And I watched my whole dad's body burning in the complete shape of him, and it looked like an Alex Gray painting. I don't know if you know him, but he does amazing paintings of uh, the body system and your nervous systems and all these other different mm-hmm. things, but then mm-hmm. he does amazing art pieces of the body of paintings. And it looked just like one of his paintings where the flames were all coming around him. And I sat outside while the ashes were coming out of the, of the, of the, of the chimney, and falling around me, and I was sitting next to a dumpster, and my dad used to like to go dumpster diving. <laughs> so I said to myself, this all seems really appropriate here. <laughs> yeah. And then when we took him out, uh, you know, and he was, he, he, they, you know, they have to grind up your body because all the bones aren't fully cremated right. when you get cremated. Mm-hmm. So it goes in sort of like this large Cuisinart, and then, you know, I held his ashes warm next to my body as we left and took him with us and and we spread his ashes on my property in a ceremony months and months later when everyone could come from New York and we had a really beautiful magical service for him and so it was like a very completed you know we cared for him and I felt completed all the way till the end through this I even unfortunately I ended up having to carry part of his carry part of his body because the men who came to pick him up couldn't carry it for some reason, and mm. so I just stepped in and ended up, you know, which was intense, but I feel very complete about all of it, you know what I mean? Yeah, I have to admit, Gail, you just gave me an education in in, uh, in mortuary or whatever you call it, <laughs> cremation for sure. I, I, you know, never thought through that process, and I don't know that I could have stood there and watched that. I don't. I mean, you could describe it as a very beautiful thing. I, I don't know that I would have seen it the same way, but God bless you for doing that. I have to say, I didn't know that I was capable of doing that either, but I had done one like six months or eight months earlier, and so I'd had the experience once with with a dear friend. And after that, I think it was what opened the door for me to be able to do that with my father. I don't think I could have just done yeah, that all of a sudden probably. had I not had one experience prior to it. Yeah. And um, I, you know, to me that it, that it, I, I, it was a very beautiful experience. I, I would not put it down as any kind of negative kind of thing at all. Well, that's good. Where does where does this energy come from? When you get those visions, when you recognize you as you as you put it, you pass somebody and you know something's going to happen to them. Where does that come from? You know, I call that the mystery. <laughs> and you know how I feel like some you know there's always there's and I've worked with a lot of scientists and I've done a lot of experiments where I've been a subject for very reputable, very well known scientists. Right and. Um, my conclusion, after having been working with them since 1998, is that some things are supposed to be left a mystery, and that's just the way it is. So for me, I don't have any kind of concrete answer about where does the information come from. Some people might say a god. Some people might say the universe. Some people might say from a spirit. I can't give you the exact answer of where that it is. I just know that it comes and that 
some people aren't listening, so the voice that comes to them might not be heard. But the more that you accept listening to your intuitive thoughts or your gut feelings, then the more it seems clearer, like they speak louder to you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, does everybody have this? If, and just Some people don't pay attention to it. I mean, I know I often t- talk to psychics and mediums on my program here. And they will frequently say, you know, they feel that everybody has this in them. And I'd say, oh, listen, I'm as, I'm as about as sensitive as a brick. I really am. <laughs> I've got one of those minds where it's, you know, it's logic. It's black and white. I can't can't think outside that. It's it's very straightforward to me. So I don't feel like I've got any of those sensitivities. Is that common? Well, let me say I just was speaking to um, uh, Dr. Dean, Dr. Dean Radin. Yep. And um, he's was doing some different investigative experiment or something he was working on, and he was looking for subjects who had never had any kind of psychic, if you want to use that word, or mm-hmm. any kind of experience that was unusual to them ever once in their life. And he said it was nearly impossible for him to get a control group of people that had never experienced anything. Oh, wow. Because, and I was really, I was happy to hear that because I feel the same way that everybody has these different um, uh, access to information in them, but that they might um, have shut down some of that. And if they open up to it, they can sort of, you know, like allow it to happen again. Mm -hmm. But what happens to most people that I find is if you talk to them, it will be around a death or an accident, or a birth, or something that will have happened in their life, and they will say, I, I, I was over here in uh, Wyoming, and I didn't believe it, but my father was in uh, Chicago or wherever, and while I was laying in bed, I saw an image of them floating at the edge of my bed, or sitting, standing there in a doorway, and then I receive a phone call the next day that that person had passed away. So many people have that experience, especially around the the death time. But it's, you know, people have it in a dream or they have a feeling or sometimes they see it in an animal or a bird or something that comes to them and they feel like it's a a message or a spirit of the person that they know who had just passed on. So they won't share that or tell you that because they'll think, oh, my God, I hope I'm not crazy, or why did I see my father standing at the door, and now I heard he's, he's dead, you know. So a lot of people don't open up and, and share that with other people. And I think that's why I'm happy to be doing these talks and be on these podcasts, and I started my own podcast, because I feel like sharing the stories is the way that helps to heal other people when you're giving your honest authentic experience and that's all i have that i can share i can't share any you know you know technological thing you know (laughs) (laughs) well it's funny as you were talking about dr Uh, dean radin and you said that he was trying to find a control group of people that have not had any experience in their life i started to think you know that i might fall into that category and then i remembered that one time i was sitting at the table and I thought for sure I was going to get a blackjack. And sure enough, I'd bet enough, and, and, and I got the blackjack and I won. But then I remember there was about a 30 other times where I had that same feeling and I lost everything I bet. So it was, of course, in Las Vegas that all that happened. So I, I got to tell you a funny <laughs> Las Vegas story. 
<laughs> Go ahead. Let's hear it. Well, I could tell you probably a couple of them, but I'll tell you this one particular one. Um, I live in a small town. I don't know, maybe it's 8,000 people in Sebastopol here in California. And I was walking, to, went to one of those, like, copy office machine places. Mm-hmm. And I ran into this guy who years later, I found out, used to work with um, some of the people at Stanford and some of the scientists back back in the day, like in the 70s. And... Um, I said to him, I met him, at the, ran into him, and I said, yeah, I'm going off to Las Vegas with some girls. I was 28 years old because it was a, uh, they were renting a limousine, and all these girls were going up. And I was like, I'm not your regular kind, but, you know, I'll go with these girls and see what happens. You know, I'm not a gambler, but I'll just go. And before I leave, he tells me, oh, I have two numbers for you. And he said, whatever number it was, you know, I'll just say for now, a 12 and a, and a, and a 20. And he said, when you go there, I want you to bet on in the roulette machine, in the roulette table, and those are the two numbers. Mm-hmm. And I p- rolled it up on a piece of, in the piece of paper, and I put it in my pants pocket because I was leaving that afternoon. Mm-hmm. So that afternoon, I drive up with the girls, and I see none of them really like me <laughs> <laughs> because I don't drink, and I... <laughs> <laughs> I, and I wasn't really going. I was just going because I thought I'd want to see what 28-year-old girls do because I'm 28 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so we get up there, and, the, and they're gambling their hard-earned money, and they work so hard, and this was, the, you know, and I'm watching them throw the money away, and it's kind of freaking me out. And I say, well, I only spend $20. That's my limit, but I can usually play for hours with my $20. So one of the girls is standing next to me, and I said, oh, but I just remembered. I said, I only have a few dollars left of my 20 and this man I met told me to bet on this number, and I just walked over to a roulette machine. I don't even know how to play roulette. And I put the money down on that number, he said, and it came up instantly. Oh, wow. And it was the thing where you win 36 to whatever. Yes, 36 or to 1, yeah, but sure. But I only put down a dollar or $2, right? And I looked at the girl, and I said to her, that's the number he told me. And I go to pull out the paper to show her. And sure enough, I didn't bet again, but the second number he said came right up after it. Wow. And after that, they all loved me in the limousine. Everybody treated me so nicely. (laughs) Gail, I think you need to meet me in Las Vegas. We've got some roulette to play. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Then I had another time in Las Vegas where we were at the um, International Remote Viewing Association conference, which is all about, you know, all these people come to discuss about remote viewing. And... I all of a sudden felt like I wanted to play, um, what's that other game? Uh, craps? We were all craps, right? And before I went, I didn't know how to play, and our neighbor was trying to teach us how to play. So we had the dice here, and we're rolling the dice, and I, I say, well, tell me what we have to get. So he would tell me what we'd have to get, and I'd be very good to get the numbers. So I said, what am I going to do when I get to Las Vegas? You're not going to be there. I'm not going to know how to do this. And you know how they get at these roulette tables. They're very, you know, you got to move fast and know what you're doing. So <laughs> I go there, and my friend Kim is with me. She's a very good friend to come with me on these little journeys for these trips. And we get there, and I say to her, uh, Matthew told me that when I go to the roulette table, just look for an Italian man. Stand next to him, and you'll know what to do. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So I'm standing at the end of the table, and it's, you know, the people are going around with the craps thing, and the dice is about to get to me, right? And 
I see this guy. He's got shiny, pointy shoes. He's got a little mustache. I'm looking at him. He's gambling away. I said to him, are you Italian? He says, they don't call me Joe Mancini for nothing or whatever. <laughs> so I said, well, I don't know how to do this gambling part. I said, so just tell me what numbers we need to have, and I'll just throw the dice. Because I didn't know when it's supposed to be 7, when it's supposed to be 11, or what, you know, and then you have to get a different number. So I roll the dice out by whatever number he says, and it comes up immediately. And the next thing I know, people are shouting, shooter, shooter, shooter. Oh, and I'm boy. thinking, they want to shoot me now? You know what? <laughs> <laughs> and he tells me, he goes with his hand and he looks around, he points to people all around because it's a packed casino thing, packed roulette. He said, Do you see all these people? They're all your best friends right now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. So with the, the little bit of money I had by the time I finished with him, because he would tell me, you know, where to put it and what to do, right? Mm -hmm. By the time I left, I had almost $300, and I started with, you know, less than 20 or whatever. Wow, yeah. So every time I'd get one of those $25 chips that was so exciting, I would just turn around to my friend Kim and say, here's the chip. <laughs> and it pretty much paid for our hotel and our trip there. I mean, it was, and it was just an absolutely fun experience to be able to do something like that. Uh, you know, and for whatever reason, at the time, I was very in tune to the dice. Now, you can't give me the dice every time and go to a roulette table and I'm going to roll it just like you tell me. But at that night, I was able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great story. Um, I want to talk, you You kind of touched on it here, but you worked with, uh, as you mentioned, Dean Radin, but you also worked with Russell Targ. And, oh, yes. And, we've, uh, been, yeah, we've Russell, been together. Yeah, in fact, I have both of them coming up on my podcasts uh, in the next few weeks because I've got a new podcast out. And I did interviews with both of them, and I just cherish it. I met them in 1998. They worked in the same company where my husband was working. So I always give my husband all the credit because if he didn't introduce me to them because they were looking for a subject, I never would have ever met men like Dean and Russell. And, and they are the most reputable and amazing, accomplished scientists. And I'm just honored for the fact that not only did I do that with them, but they're also my very dear friends. And I have tremendous respect and honor and just love for those two guys. In fact, I have a picture of them and me together at Las Vegas sitting here in my desk while I'm talking to you. <laughs> yeah, uh, Russell, they, yeah, Russell's they been... showed me things that I didn't know I was able to do because they would say, all right, we're going to try you on this experiment. We're going to try you on this experiment. I had no idea I could do the things that they asked me to do. I'd never tried those things. I didn't know I could do remote viewing like that until they asked me to do it because yeah. I'd never been trained like in their protocol of how you do remote viewing. I just would sit down and start with Russell, and he was just—it was just really incredible to be able to work with him like that. And he's able to make any subject feel completely relaxed that they can just do the task by just relaxing and telling them what you see. He, uh, and he has a way of doing it like that's no other way I've seen other people do it. He just has magic with that. Yeah, Russell Targ is, is like the, the father or grandfather or whatever you'd say of uh, remote viewing. He really, really is a pioneer. And we've had, we've had him on this show before. What a great discussion. But when you, were, when you started working with uh, Russell, uh, 
were you you said you really didn't know what this remote viewing thing was about no um, obviously you had some sensitivities already so that maybe gave you a bit of a head start but how did you how were you introduced to the concept i'll tell you it was amazing my husband told them a story about me and they said yes she's the kind we'd like to work with and they interviewed me for a couple hours it was supposed to be an hour but i had so many stories that it went on and on and at the end of it, they told me I should write a book, which I did. I'm still trying to get it published. And um, they said, we'd like to work with you. Please show up on Tuesday at 1 o'clock. So I show up at Tuesday at 1 o'clock. I'm in my husband's office because he had a big office, and he was like three doors down from Russell and Dean's office. And Russell said, okay, make yourself comfortable. And I said, well, I'd like to lay down on the floor to be comfortable. So I laid down on the floor. He sat in the chair and he said, okay, what we're going to do now is you're going to be shown a picture at three o'clock that the computer is going to randomly select from 300 photographs from National Geographic. So they're places in the world. And what we'd like you to do at one o'clock is draw the photo that's going to be selected at three o'clock. Well, I didn't know I could do that, draw a picture that <laughs> sure. hasn't even been picked yet, but it's going to be picked two hours from now. Mm -hmm. But I would lay down on the floor, and then he gave me a piece of paper and a pencil, and I turned over, and I just started drawing what I thought I would see. And then at 3 o'clock, the picture would come up, and lo and behold, it, it was a match. And so they said, well, so we started doing series of 20 at a time. We would do them. I would come down once a week, and we would do two sessions. We would break in the middle for lunch until we piled up, you know, 20 full, 20 few, 20, you know, completed sessions. And then they were, you know, given to Ed May and some other people who were the judges. And then they would judge the, 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 the picture. And that was the full, that was how we did it. There was nothing, there was no preparation. I didn't do any meditation. There was, <laughs> and it just worked. What about and the, I was so surprised. Yeah, what about the, the form of remote viewing? And, and forgive me, I'm a bit of a, a, of a novice when it comes to talking about this. I, my only experience with any of it is just what my guests have told me. But what about the, the version of remote viewing where you actually project yourself into another location another spot you know maybe it's you know another country across the ocean who knows uh but you put yourself there and you can actually describe items in a room or whatever it happens to be did you participate in any of that i i did the kind where i did one that's you know russell has a film that you can watch on youtube called third eye spies mm -hmm. and it's the full story of all the the information that was um, classified that he he went to the government and had it declassified uh, his son helped him who was a lawyer so he was able to create and show this movie to everyone about what happened about the 20-year project so if anyone's interested they should check that out well there's something there called extras and in the extras it's him and I doing a, I think it has about 7,000 views now, of him and I doing a remote viewing. That's the kind that you're talking about, the outbound kind, where somebody was out in the town of Petaluma while I sat in the office, and they had a GoPro camera, and at 5, 10, and 15 minutes, I would draw and say what the person was seeing and looking at at three different locations that they went to. There was a lot more information than you'll see in the um, video, 
but uh, it was considered a very successful outbound remote viewing. And um, it was a very interesting one because the man ended up looking at this billboard that was filled with all these, like, amazing, colorful designs that looked like squiggles. Mm-hmm. And I just said, I don't know, I'm looking at this colorful, squiggly, huge thing here. And I said, and I feel like I want a cup of coffee when I don't <laughs> drink coffee. Well, the man was in front of a coffee shop, and he really wanted coffee, but he knew he was in a control experiment. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. So he couldn't get the cup of coffee, you know. And when I described the dog that walked by him, he hadn't turned on the camera yet. But he said, in fact, verbally, when we first met, I didn't meet him till after we did this, so I didn't know if it was a man or a woman or who was out there. So I was connecting to somebody that was walking around a few miles away from where I was, and I was describing what he was seeing or doing. Wow. I don't know if you, that's the kind you mean. Yeah, but no, that's kind of it. That yeah, I think, I think that's it. It's kind of you, 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 you're receiving information from a distance, or you're actually traveling the distance in some astral way. Um, I Somehow wonder... it always feels to me like I'm looking through the person's eyes. And I've had that experience. I kind of felt, I sort of felt like it was proved to me once when somebody I knew that was working for me, a contractor, all of a sudden I'm at home and I have this image that he's, diving, and I knew he was an abalone diver, you know, for a hobby, and that he was stuck in a whole bunch of, like, seaweed or something, and there was some kind of danger that happened, which is one of the things I have to say when we talk about the blessing and the curse, is that a lot of times for me, things that come to me that are the scary things, but occasionally I have positive, like, sexual things or birth things that are much more happier events to know about mm-hmm. than, <laughs> than these, you know? But because he was in danger, somehow I picked that up. And I'm looking under the ocean, and I'm saying to myself, this is so weird. Why is everything brown? I thought that, you know, seaweed and other things would be dark greens or purples or other colors. And then when he comes to work and I tell him about this this experience I have of seeing him under the water, and his mouth drops and he tells me, yes, I was tangled in some kind of a seaweed thing. We got out. He said... And the reason you saw everything brown, he said, is because I'm colorblind. I don't see those other colors under the ocean. Wow. (laughs) So I felt, well, you know, (laughs) maybe you're looking through their eyes. I don't know the answers. As I said, to me, it's a mystery, and I I just accept it. I don't need to know why. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let's talk about other cultures. You've actually spent a lot of time working with other cultures, a lot of indigenous people, a lot of ancient cultures for that matter. How has that played into the into this set of experiences and sensitivities that you've had throughout your life? Well, I'll have to say, I feel there's two cultures that I'm very immersed in and still am to this moment as we speak. And that's Mongolia, and that's the Huichol Indians uh, in the mountains of Mexico. And these two cultures, I truly feel, you know, this is another part of being telepathic. I was, you know, there's a book Dean wrote called Supernormal, and there's a chapter on telepathy, and that describes exactly, it's, it's you know, that's, I'm the Gale in that chapter about telepathy. Oh, wow, yeah. And so I have learned, and in fact, it was a filmmaker who really helped me to see this, is that I'm able to connect into other cultures, and we don't speak the same language, but we have telepathy. So 
my my friend um, Julio, he uh, he and I is the only person where I've actually dreamed together with him. But before we had cell phones and before we had ways of communicating, I would get like send him a message, Julio. I and you know he'd have to go to a switchboard and everything. Julio, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. He would call me every time. Wow. When something scary would happen and I'd have a dream like something had happened to him, or so, we would both know each other's things that were going on, but he speaks Wicho, I speak English, we have Spanish, but for us it's both sort of a, a butchered language, <laughs> but we understand each other. When the Mongolians were here, and I was left with the Mongolian shaman we had brought, she had come, we had met her in Mongolia and had done ceremonies with her there, Zagda, she came here to the United States to visit, and she decided that she left here and came back and said, I saw spirits all around you. I have to initiate you as a Buryat Mongolian shaman, the white shaman. And so I underwent this rigorous six- and seven-day initiation with no translator. Wow. And she would think of the things she would want, and I would just somehow know that it was this special herb I'd gotten when I'd been near Siberia, you know, and I brought down the bed when she said, I need this. So she had a filmmaker um, come from uh, University of San Francisco. He was in a filmmaking program, a Mongolian. And he came up here to film this whole thing about her and I because he was doing a film on shamanism. So it was the first time I got to hear her response because he was the interpreter, and I said, he said to her, how did you talk to Gail when you can't speak each other's language? And in Mongolian, she said, I would just think about what it was, and Gail would just come into my head. And there she would be, and we would discuss it, and then she would do what I said. <laughs> <laughs> so this is not the first time. When I was in Japan, the same thing happened. I was staying with a Japanese family, and something had happened in their family, and it was, you know not an honorable thing or whatever. I'm sitting there knowing everything that's going on without having one word in English. <laughs> so uh, there's something about connection that I'm able to make with other people, and I realize it's not a language connection. It's something else. And I think that they see that in me also, and so we get connected in a deep way. And then the next thing I know, all of a sudden, I'm becoming a shaman. You know, I didn't ask to become a shaman, right? Right. right. But uh, one of the famous remote viewers, Ingo Swan, the day I met him, I was with Russell, and we went to his house to visit him. Ingo said to me, as we were leaving, he shook my hand and said, you know what? You're a shaman. You just don't know that you're a shaman. You don't know how to act like a shaman. And sure enough, after he planted that seed, all of a sudden shamans came popping into my life continually. <laughs> <laughs> and then I ended up being turned into one. So I, I, I just, my immersion with other cultures, and by the way, I, I've always gone by myself alone to these places. And so there's something about that also. You know, some people say it's stupid. Some people say it's brave. You know, <laughs> it's a matter of opinion. But I've taken risks. And in those risks, I've had just deep connections with people that I just have tremendous, you know, value for. And that means the world to me. I, I was just, I just sent a whole bunch of my homemade mulberry jams back to Mongolia with a Mongolian person that was visiting. Mm -hmm. 
and they're eating it in Mongolia, and I'm seeing the pictures of them eating my jelly. Oh. I can't tell you how great that feels, like the world is so small. Sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, uh, so when I'm there, when I was there, I, you know, we went down all through the Gobi Desert. We went, we did a lot of different shamanic things and other things, and the, just the sharing of the culture is, you know, with the Weechol Indians, I was there for the peyote ceremony, the ceremony of the corn. I was the only white person there. I'm at 10,000 feet elevation in the middle of, you know, I could never get home if I ever had, if everyone said, okay, well, you have to go home now. I couldn't get myself out of a mountain, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I get taken in and taken care of by the people, and I end up meeting, like the, like was told, when you go to the peyote ceremony, you will never be part of the ceremony. They will never offer you just sit there on the side as an observer quietly. Well, that's not what happened. A little old woman picked up my arm, and she took me in the circle, and the next thing you knew, I was dancing with all the weecholes and drinking and eating the little bits of peyote that's ceremonially done, and, um, and, and they dressed me in their clothing. So the same thing with the Mongolians. I've always been given gifts of the clothing of the purse of the people. So... I, I, I'm very, this is you're asking me a question about something that I'm really proud of. Sure, and you should be. And I can only assume, Gail, that they recognize you as a spiritual sister or brother or brother and whatever you would call it. Um, they recognize think, that in you right away. I think that something like that must exactly happen. I went up to the Haida Indians up in Alaska uh, with a friend of mine who's a Haida Indian from Canada, and she does healing work with them. My my friend Edna. And I, you know, I, every time we, we, people would come up, they would say what different tribes they were from, and nobody would talk to me. It was like I was, you know, the devil. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone would be coming up, oh, I come from the Bear and the Raven clan, and I come from this clan and the that clan. And everyone would just, they would just pass by me, even though I'd be standing in a circle with the people. So finally I said, you know, I can't take this. I'm too, you know, independent a person. You can't shut me out. So when they came to the next greeting, I said, I'm from the Schmohawks. I said, <laughs> <laughs> and after I said that, it kind of broke down the thing, and I was part of their healing circle. And in the healing circle, I shared all the traumas and things I had experienced in life. And my friend said that they opened up after that in a way that they had not opened before to her with such a freeness of being able to discuss the rapes and the and the and the tragedies that that happened in their village and the things that they've had to live through and it was a i there's a, a an 80 something year old Haida woman who writes to me or calls me anytime she hears this fire in California she calls to see how I'm doing and I met her this one time and stayed at her home you know in Alaska wow. <laughs> so you know I I, I I always feel like um, to be able to break a barrier like that, you know, the, the finest basket weaver showed me how to how to weave baskets, and I went to her class, and I couldn't even make like a braid with a basket. You know, it's very difficult. You look at it and you think, oh, yeah. it's so easy. Yeah. It's not easy. No. You can't make a basket. You have to really be, <laughs> you have to really have a talent to learn how to do this. So I was really grateful to be with them and um, be in their place called Heidelberg, and it's a it's a little island um, that's only for Haida Indians, and they all get to live there. And they, you know, fish for salmon, etc. So I'm, I'm really grateful to, 
you know, to have traveled around the world and to feel embraced by certain different cultures. So thank you for asking that. Yeah, well, I and I also, you have another real gift, too. Your laughter is so infectious. I mean, you can't help but smile when you when I hear you laugh. And people in the chat room are commenting about the same thing. Um, we really have a few minutes left. I wanted to ask you about dreams because several times during the conversation you mentioned dreams how important are dreams, not just in the life of somebody who is who's obviously spiritual, such as yourself, but just for people in general? I know, you know, I dream about my parents, both of both of whom are gone. Um, sometimes it's happy, sometimes it's sad, but I but I feel as though in some way it's a communication to me. Well, I would say that I agree with that a hundred percent. I feel like, you know. I don't have any answers. As I said, things are a mystery, and I'm never claiming to know about all these things. But what it does feel like to me, from what I've seen so far, is that our body dies, but there's something in our consciousness or energetically or something that lives on that does not die. And I'm not saying, I'm not sure if we jump back into another body or if our spirit goes into an animal or exactly what we do. I just know that we don't just die and then we're gone. It just I can't believe that, not from all the experiences I've had. Something something is living on, something is communicating to you in that dream, whether it's consciousness or uh energetic essence, I'm not sure. Whether I'm not sure that answer, but um I think dreams are are a very important part of a person's um, you know, makeup. It's a, it's an unconscious thing that brings things to your to light for you. Some dreams are just made out of the things that you saw in the day and things that happened. You know what I mean? And yeah. that's just like a regular dream. Right. But when you have those dreams that when you wake up, it doesn't leave you, and it feels like you're saying, "I felt like I connected with my parents." That's how it makes me feel. So th- that's how I feel about that. And also. Dreams where they tell you information like something dangerous might happen or uh, something about another person. Like sometimes I would dream about my my brother that something was going to happen. I'd call him up and I'd say, oh, something's going to happen to you. I don't know what it is. And he'd laugh at it. And then when something happened after that, he said, just call me anytime you have those dreams. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, In fact, when you talk about the laughter... I had the the highest compliment I was ever paid. I was at a retreat called the Spiritual Care of the Living and Dying, I think, or something like that. And it was a Ram Dass retreat, and it was no, no, it was Stephen and Andrea Levine, and it was ten days of. We had 150 people, and some of them were, you know, knowing that they were going to be dying soon. So there was maybe 25 people there who were, you know, dealing with death. And I was walking through the woods there. It was up in Oregon, a place called Brighton Bush. And I said, God, if there was anything I could do to help somebody here, it would make me feel so good. To What could I do? And this man comes up to me and says, I just want to thank you. He said, I'm dying of AIDS of the brain. It's affecting my brain, and I don't have a long time left to live. He said, but when I heard your laughter in our room today... I laughed for the first time in a very long time. Mm. And he said, if you could make a little cassette tape, that's how long ago this was, of my laughter and send it to me, he said, I would love to hear you laughing during my death. 
Oh, wow. And I thought was the highest compliment I'd ever been paid. I unfortunately was not able to get the cassette to him in time by his death. But I was very honored that I gave him some relief of laughter during that, you know, time there. And in a plus death one that's not death, I was in a restaurant, John Ash and Company, a fancy restaurant here, and I was laughing my head off. And all of a sudden, and you know, sometimes people get really mad when I laugh my head <laughs> off. They're not supposed to do that in a restaurant or you're embarrassing them or whatever. And this couple comes up and says, I just want to thank you. We have been going through so much stress adopting a child, and it all just finally happened. And when we heard your laughter, we were able to just let go and laugh and realize everything is over now. We're going to have our child. So we just want to thank you. Uh-huh. So my family that was looking at me embarrassed about my laughter all was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shows them. <laughs> so anyway, you made me think of that, so... I, I don't know. I've never been on live radio, so I hope this is coming out okay. <laughs> oh, it's terrific. Uh, I want to. I want to switch the topic for the few more minutes we have. I know you've worked on a book. I, I, you said. I think you said you're, you're looking for a publisher for it, so you're not sure when it's going to be released. What's the book about? I think it's a, a, a small medium at large. Isn't that the title, or is that a working That's title? That's the title of the book, and it's the title of my podcast, mm-hmm. which uh, my third episode will be out this Wednesday. If they're looking for me, they have to go. A small with an A, a small medium at large podcast with Gail Heisen. Otherwise, they'll find other ones that say that title. So, just if they're looking, make sure they can get that. But the book is also a small medium at large, and I kept that title because Russell encouraged me that he thinks it's a great title. So, after numerous titles we tossed around, we decided to keep that one because he's been in publishing all his life, and he would really be thrilled if I could get this published. But, um, you know, it's all like a journey. So whatever happens along the way is all part of the process. And, you know, I, had, I saw a psychic in my 30s because people always told me as a kid, you know, you should, you should write a book. And, and I was only like, you know, 16 then. Then they're telling me in my 20s and my 30s you should write a book. But I'm figuring they're all people just say that. But when Russell and Dean said you should write a book, I sat down. It took me six months. And I just wrote a chronological book of, um, you know, my life from when I was born until that age of 40 or something when I was finishing it. And um, what I did is I put stories on that site called Medium, medium medium.com. And if you type my name in, there's 10 different stories there with photos that tell you uh, that would be like reading things outside, you know, reading what would be inside my book you would see in those stories. They're little samples. So if anyone wants to know what my writing or whatever my book might be like, they could check out those 10 different short five-minute stories that are in there. I got the spoon and fork bending story, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, family felonies. So they've got some fun titles. We didn't get a chance to cover that, and we're out of time here. But I also noted that your website, Ace, A with the letter A, a small medium at large dot C-O, Exactly. Um, has, That's my website. Yeah, and that has and a collection. Show, you know, and let, you'll have to let me know how to find your show after maybe send me an email yeah, or a link or whatever. For sure. So I can put it up on my website. We absolutely will. So uh, this has been a terrific hour, and I appreciate your time. And again, I appreciate your laughter. You have such a an uplifting energy about you. You can feel that even in an interview. I find it I find it quite amazing how you can tell how someone has such a positive energy. And, and Gail, you're one of those people. So thank you for joining us tonight. 
Well, it's a pleasure. If you ever need me again, talking is my specialty. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, I am sure we'll take you up on it. Thank you very much for being here. Take care, and we will talk to you again. Okay, have a great evening, and thank you so much for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a minute and, and just visit the latest on the Gabby Petito case and just see what's happening there. Again, um, Gail's website is a small, medium, at large. The letter A, a small, medium, at large, dot C-O. Not dot com, but dot C-O. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.